afternoon, friends, fans, and colleagues. Uh, Welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, on our regular day, which is Wednesday, but at this special time. Uh, And the reason uh, for the special time is we have a very special guest uh, calling in from the U.K., and, um, you know, the dreaded time difference. Uh, so thank you for being with us. And um, as with most of the topics here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine, uh, as uh, the artist Alea Deo said, it is time uh, to awaken. And this important topic that we're covering today uh, is no exception because that topic is deep adaptation. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, climate change and uh, uh, the four R's uh, that are related to that, uh, resilience, relinquishment, restoration, reconciliation. Uh, And if you're wondering what all of this is about, um, uh, you're probably not the only one uh, because uh, it takes a lot of courage to talk about this deep adaptation to uh, climate change that is upon us. Uh, And that's what our topic is uh, today, Uh, something we all must know and we must face. And uh, the person that's going to bring this topic to us today uh, is Toni Spencer. Let me tell you a little bit about her, and then we will start our chat. Uh, Tony is a freelance educator, poet, mentor, and activist uh, with organizations like the Emergence Network and Schumacher College. in response to the socio-ecological and cultural breakdown in the 21st century, uh, Tony tries to create spaces where grit, grief, and laughter are welcome, where kinship and wisdom can emerge. Uh, her work invites us to slow down and get on the inside of what it is to be a part of something more than we have been taught and uh, to try to fall in love uh, with life uh, in these worst of times that uh, uh, are ahead for us. Uh, she and others uh, hosted a deep adaptation deep dive last year uh, when she presented with uh, Jim Bendel. Uh, you might uh, know his name. Uh, he's uh, uh, one of the other leaders out there talking about this topic of deep adaptation. So we're going to just jump right in here and uh, say hello to Tony. Uh, thank her for being with us today and uh, ask her to just uh, get right to it and tell us what in the world is deep adaptation. Welcome, Tony. Mm, thank you. It's really, it's, it's, it, I was going to say it's a delight to be here, and it is. And at the same time, I'm kind of really sorry to have to be here having this conversation. So it's it's an interesting topic and an in- interesting conversation to be in because on the one hand, um, as the title to this show said, Deep Adaptation, Liberation and Climate Change, on the one hand it feels liberating to have these conversations that many of us have wanted and longed to have for a long time, but they've been quite taboo. And on the other hand, it's it's pretty unpleasant to have to talk about the times that we're in and the times ahead that, is, as you spoke to so beautifully, are likely to be very challenging. So deep adaptation is it's a, a map, a, a way of navigating, a way of having conversations about some of the taboos around climate change and some of the challenges. And it was 
developed by Jen Bendel, who is a professor of sustainability leadership in the UK and has worked in many different aspects of sustainability and ecological and social change over the past few decades. And he got to the stage, like many of us, of realizing that a lot of the work he was doing around sustainability, this notion that if we if we just do a little more of this and a little more of that, and if we persuade a few more organizations and governments and individuals to change a little bit more, then we can avoid the ecological devastation and social collapse that that is already happening, but that is is inevitably going to get worse. And he got to the stage of, of like many of us, are realizing that we're not changing enough. We're not doing enough to to stop this ecological, systemic, unpredictable change that is ahead and this social, systemic, unpredictable change that is ahead and that's already happening in, in corners of the world that, that many of us have the privilege not to directly experience. And so Jem sat with, with his own grief and his own confusion and developed something called deep adaptation as a way to help people have conversations about climate change and wider issues of systemic trouble. So that's one way I could describe deep adaptation, and, and I look forward to going into it in a bit more detail. Okay, um, thank you, Tony. Um, I I heard Jim um, doing an interview, and uh, I have to admit I was uh, quite surprised uh, to hear what he had to say. Um, but uh, I believed what he had to say uh, because I, I, you know, fell into the group, I think, as so many of us do, uh, that we realize the importance of climate change but uh, thought we still had time left, you know, thought that we could, um, you know, we still could turn things around. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe from the interview I heard Jim do, um, we are past the point of no return. I, I believe he might have even said, you know, we could probably start to expect food shortages in less than five years. And, um, I mean, is it, really, is it really that dire? It, it could be. So I'll, I'll say right up front that, that in my work and in my way of uh, responding to all of this, I have not landed on one truth around this in terms of the time scale. And I don't think any of us really can, but there is enough research within climate science, within uh, other ecological sciences around soil depletion and um, all of the different factors that influence the capacity of the earth to provide food and the capacity of agriculture, modern industrialized agriculture, to provide the food that we have become used to, that there is enough research to show that it is very possible that within five years we will be experiencing quite extreme food shortages, particularly within grain agriculture, which is one of the the main ways that the majority of the world sustains itself, both directly and in terms of feeding the meat that, that many people use to sustain themselves. So food, 
food and sustenance as we know it in the Western world and in the majority South world as well that has, has been influenced by that in, in the ways that we've restricted our diets to, to just a very few forms of, of sustenance that five years could well be when we start to feel this very directly. And of course, some people in, in the global south are feeling this already. So when you say uh, the global south, um, tell me where you mean. And, um, and, and, and maybe that will also answer this next question. Uh, you said that um, this point of no return, this um, effects of climate change is, is being felt maybe in places we don't see so much on the news. Um, could you tell us where this is, the global south, and, and where is climate change already having a very adverse effect? Hmm. Well, so I'd, yeah, I'd like to respond in two ways. One is uh, to loosely, when I say the global south, I mean I mean Africa, the the, the large land mass of of many different peoples that we called Africa, South America, Latin America, Asia. A lot of these places that provide our a lot of our food, or provide a lot of the 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 labor that creates the lifestyles that we in the, in the West enjoy. In terms of specificity, I have to confess that my, my post-menopausal memory is not great on, um, on the, the detail, but there are island states who are already experiencing rises in sea levels. There are places where drought is impacting greatly. There are places where the hurricanes and, and extreme weather conditions that are part of this acceleration of unpredictable climate uh, are hitting hard. Mozambique for one very recently. So there are a lot of places which both are feeling the impact of, of, the, environmental, of the environmental changes, but also of the ongoing uh, social inequity that is not necessarily directly related to climate change, but that is part of the wider story. This ongoing social inequity that inevitably, as, as trouble hits us further, is likely to be more impactful. Uh, it's, it's related to issues of immigration and migration. It's related to food shortages and, and the pollution of water. So there are. Okay. As it's, it's interesting. As I speak, I notice that I'm trying to give lots of facts, and the part that I'm interested in, the part that my work attends to more, is the feelings I'm having as I say this. That even as I speak, even as someone working in this field, that I notice the grief alive in my body right now as I say this. And one of the key principles of deep adaptation is the invitation to, yes, to educate ourselves, and yes, to be able to follow the aspects of science, of history, of um, social understanding and, and systemic globalized understanding that we can, but at the same time to slow down enough and notice how it feels to be human at this time. 
to notice how it is to realize that how we've been living and how we are how we've always assumed life might continue to be includes includes collapse that's already happening that it includes okay. things that that our heart values would would never sign up to if we'd been given a a straight up choice in the first place so there's something right. where deep adaptation is in in the work that I'm doing is is very much about how we slow down enough to feel what it is to be here now and to find new ways of being together okay and, you know, and let me say for those um, who are new to this, because, um, you know, Tony, you and Jim have been at this a while. I'm relatively new to it. Some of my listeners are hearing it for the first time, you know, in these last uh, couple minutes that you and I have been uh, talking. You know, the, uh, what we're really saying is deep adaptation is adapting to the drastic possibly, we think, the drastic changes that are going to happen around the planet as a result of climate change. Um, We know there have been um, protests all over the the world. Uh, I think just recently in England, um, I think there were extinction protests or something. Uh, Mm -hmm. I know here in the United States, um, uh, there's a television show on Sunday nights called Madam Secretary, and they had a couple episodes about, I mean, it was fictitious, but it, I think it very clearly showed what can happen. Um, you know, there was an episode about an island that uh, basically had to be evacuated of, of the hundreds of thousands of people who lived on the island because of uh, rising, uh, you know, rising uh, oceans. Um, they would have all basically drowned, and you know we had to, you know, send over you know multitudes of boats and helicopters to try to rescue these hundreds of thousands of people, and then we had to find a place to put them. And of course, you know, this was Hollywood, so uh, they they came up with a, a interesting um, uh, solution. Uh, there was a, a celebrity who owed a lot of taxes and uh, owned an island that was uninhabited, and uh, they talked him into uh, giving up his island to these people who had lost their home island in exchange for all of the taxes he owed and so that he wouldn't go to jail. Um, and, you know, it's, it was kind of a silly episode in a sense, um, but I can easily see something like that happening, and I can just imagine the political upheaval of trying to relocate uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, um, especially with the anti-immigration sentiment, um, you know, all around the world, um, you know, the the scarcity issues. Uh, you know, scarcity of resources. I mean, here in the United States, it's, um, you know, it's just ridiculous as if these people trying to cross the border for a new life, a better life for their safety, um, you know, or really going to take our jobs or something like that. Um, I mean, this is a complicated subject, but 
um, and uh, there is a lot of grief around it. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of the work that you and Jim are doing, um, and I want you to mention the paper that he has available online for people to be able to go and read. Um, but what really interested me in the interview I heard uh, Jim do uh, was about the four R's. Uh, the four R's, uh, resilience, relinquishment, restoration, and reconciliation. Um, I believe uh, those are the four things that, um, um, you know, folks like you are talking about uh, that are so important. And uh, I wonder if you wouldn't mind briefly, I mean, we, you know, we can't go in, in, in huge depth, but briefly talk about the four R's and how it relates to this topic, if you don't mind. Hmm. I'll be glad to. And um, I think, as you said, it's a very complicated conversation. In a way, we're talking about life, the universe, and everything. And we're talking about it on the personal, familial, community, national, and global scale. We're talking about human and more than human. We're talking about past, present, and future. We're talking about everything from our inner realms and how we relate with each other to how we feed each other, how we create exchange. So it's, it's, it's vast, and that's where the four R's can really help us kind of ha have a few tap roots into when it all gets too overwhelming and a bit confusing to come back to these core questions. So, yes, I'd love to speak to them. And... Um, in my ponderings and, and musings in anticipation of our phone call and the relationship between deep adaptation and the sacred feminine, I, I found myself articulating another three R's on top of the original four. <laughs> so maybe I'll speak to them later as well. But the, the four R's that Jem speaks of are resilience, relinquishment, restoration and reconciliation. So resilience, and, and I'll, I'll speak to both what Jem refers to, and I'm adding some of my own bits to this as well, so it's a, it's a bit of both. Um, at, at its simplest, resilience is about what do we most value that we want to keep, and how do we do that? And and in the work I've done over, over many years, particularly working with Joanna Macy's model of the work that we connect, one of the questions we often ask is, what do you love? Like at the beginning of the workshop, we begin with gratitude, and we talk about what do you love, knowing that the more we witness each other talking about what we love, the more we can disentangle from the industrial growth system that says, in order to be happy, you must own this and this and this, and you must be this and this and this and this. And always what people talk about when they talk about what they love, it's things to do with family and place and relationship and and very simple basic things often it's it's rarely the Prada handbag and the the Ferrari and the you know grand sofa it's rarely those those aspects of consumerism that we're taught that we need so resilience is is about spending time thinking about what we most value and how do we how do we hold on to that in in ways that uh, are flexible? 
So resilience is also about our capacity for flexibility, knowing that knowing that change is going to be coming faster and knowing that, that in order to thrive in some way through the hard times, we're going to need to change quite radically and be able to respond quickly and smoothly to the unexpected. And resilience is our capacity, learning, learning ways to be flexible, knowing, learning ways to meet our needs more simply. And, and behind that is really knowing actually what is it that we need? What do we really need in order to be all right in the world? That's beyond what we've been taught by the industrial growth system. So that's number one, resilience. I could I could do the whole show on each one could be a whole show in itself. <laughs> number two is relinquishment. But let's just yeah yeah I mean because we're going to have to kind of just give a thumbnail of each of exactly. these because you know I do want to get you know I do want to go you know get into how the sacred feminine relates to all of this and uh, mm-hmm. but yeah just just a, uh, you know a brief um, description of the four R's we'll we'll do for today. Great. So relinquishment is learning to let go, learning to get lo- let go of things, of habits, of lifestyle, ways that we p- we live, we've got used to living, learning to let go of concepts and belief systems, and in particular learning to let go of our, our identity, all the ways that we've kind of shored up our own sense of self in relation to the stories that we've lived by. So relinquishment is learning to let go, and, and on some level that's a, an ongoing skill of resilience. So the third R is restoration. What is it that we want to bring back that could both help us in these difficult times and also help make meaning? So things like regenerative agriculture, planting trees, bringing back uh, ways of organizing like the commons, bringing back sharing food together, a lot, of sim- a lot of things around simplicity, around good community, and around biodiversity and soil. So that's number three is restoration. And, and it feels important to speak at both what, what will help us, but also what's of what's value for its own sake. If, if I know that I'm going to die in a week's time, I'll still do things that have meaning beyond my own life. So, so the restoration isn't just for our own sake. It's something beyond that, and it invites us beyond. The, the small eye invites us to, to act beyond the, the individual and even beyond the anthropocentric view. So number four, which Jen introduced um, a little later than the first three, is reconciliation. What and who do we want to make peace with? And in that, I would include things within our own close quarters, within relationships and family and place. And and it feels really important to name in there the what and who we want to make peace with in terms of the mess we're in is rooted in, in many places, but in particular it's rooted in colonialism and it's rooted in patriarchy and it's rooted in the industrial growth system and the European project. It's rooted in whiteness. 
and that in all of that how can we move forward in ways that acknowledge that not from a place of guilt but from a place of heart a place of reconciliation of making peace with what our ancestors have done and and the fact that it has hurt all of us as white people, as men, as women, as people of color. It's, we've all been impacted that as, as other than humans. So how do we want to make peace? And it's also making peace with our mutual mortality, whether that's because of climate change or because just we all die. <laughs> it's like there's another, I think, another of the roots of, of the problems and the troubles we're in is our, our death-phobic culture, which which we might speak of more later in relation to the, the sacred feminine. So those are the initial four R's, and I'm happy to speak of the three that I would add later on if you'd like. Sure, yeah, why don't you quickly add those, and then I want to jump into the sacred feminine aspects. Mm. Well, in, they, in a way, they speak more directly to that. So... And they're less thought through in a way, although they, they, they're they an expression of the work I've been doing. And, and I might, um, if I may, I'd love to add a poem or two within that. Would that be a good time? Um, well, let's see how our time goes. Um, and I, I don't know what, if, how, I mean, are these long poems or short poems or? <laughs> good question. Because I, I want to be middle. more... I want to be more. I want to be more focused on educating, um, in, in providing you know facts and ideas, um, you know, to, for people to you know start planting seeds and thinking about, um, mm. you know, what we're actually talking about. Mm. So, the R's that I would add, the 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 three that are coming perhaps more from the sacred feminine. And of course, how, how I relate with the sacred feminine may well be different from from you and different from some of the listeners. So I, I acknowledge that. Um, so there's reciprocity. So knowing the ways of the earth, knowing the ways that we are all entangled and interdependent with all aspects of life and death. And the more that we can learn those ecological ways that our indigenous ancestors and those indigenous peoples still still thriving or surviving, the ways that they know to live in reciprocal relationship with all beings. And that, again, takes us away from needing to be um, caught in the means of exchange and the economic system that most of us have grown up in. So that's, it, it's an aspect of relinquishment. How, how could we let go of the, the ideas that we need to be in competition with each other and that everything needs to be an exchange between one person and another? So that's, if we have time, I'd love to bring a poem to that, which Jem invited me to read as a way of expressing some of this in, in a public talk that we did. So we have reciprocity. And for me, that's an expression of the feminine as she lives in the, the wholeness and the healthy systems of the earth, the, the, the wisdom of the biological and ecological systems that 
the industrial growth system and patriarchy have suppressed. And there's this, this immense wisdom in the reciprocal rhythms of the earth. So this, the, the next is the root, is to know in our bodies our rootedness as part of the earth, as part of the sacred feminine. To feel, to use the embodied practices and the ecological practices that help us know in our physical animal body that we are rooted in the earth, that we are part of the earth, and therefore we part part of those reciprocal rhythms, which include life and death. That we're rooted somewhere, somewhere in our cellular memory, we're rooted in an indigenous wisdom. And that also, in a less comfortable way, we are our roots. Our roots are also entangled in the wounding of centuries. And so in that, in the knowing that our roots are in there, we, we, we can have, we can be liberated more from the mess of our wounds as they play out. Our insecurities, our, let's say, bad habits. That if we remember that those habits and those wounds, those the superego, the activity of of the superego and the and the structural patterns of our psyche that have that have kind of gnarled been gnarled over the re, over the years over ancestral wounding it's like knowing that remembering that it it makes it less personal and the more we can make it less personal the more we can step into developing resilience with each other we so many of us have spent so much time focused in on healing ourselves but if we can remember that our roots are entangled, there's a kind of liberation from from uh, the narcissistic gaze, and I don't mean that as a judgment, but but as a reorientation to knowing our roots. And finally, I would add, particularly as an expression of the sacred feminine, is receptivity. So at a time where we need to act. We need to act from the feminine, from receptivity, from the pausing, listening into the otherwise, resting into the yin quality of the sacred feminine, so that the yang of our activism is rooted in the feminine. Yeah. Um, well, uh, uh, Tony, I, I think the, these three R's you've added are outstanding, quite frankly, and uh, you know, one of the things I, one of the reasons I really resonated with all of this, it felt so. Oh, there's another R. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, one of the reasons uh, this all felt so um, uh, relevant. Um, you know, and, and, and just just some, you know, some scattered, disparate thoughts here. Uh, as I, I started listening to Jim talk about uh, deep adaptation is, you know, those of us who have been advocates of the sacred feminine for a long time have been trying to figure out how do we change the world? I mean, things are mm-hmm. so entrenched with capitalism and greed and uh, corporate uh, control. Um, it feels like it would almost take something so drastic as um, as climate change 
for to force people. I mean, to really force people to start rethinking everything. Uh, myself, um, uh, you know, I've been into the sacred feminine stuff uh, for over 30 years now, and it took uh, reading Eric Fromm, uh, a German psychologist who wrote the book To Have or To Be, and um, I, in a way I can relate his work to this because he said, you know, we are in this society of acquiring things. We have grown up knowing nothing but being consumers. And he was suggesting, you know, 40, 50 years ago that instead of being these consumers where we have to have this and have that, as you mentioned earlier, you know, why can't we rethink this and our life be about being, <clears throat> you know, who we are. Uh, it's not about growth. It's about um, becoming our most authentic self. It's about improving our, the, you know, the uh, um, who we are as human beings. Um, you know, our our potential. Um, you know, how we relate to one another. Uh, you know, rather than you know, we value ourselves by our assets, and um, and you know. It, it, you connect that to, you know, what I heard in a previous, you know, interview uh, that Jim did, you know, talking about practical ways we would have to change. And he mentioned the millennials and how, you know, the millennials have responded in, uh, positively to this in some cases, mm -hmm. saying, okay, well, then if this is really what the future is, um, let's get practical. Um, should I go to college and study art history or coding when maybe I need survivalist skills? Um, you know, and that totally made sense to me uh, as well. You know, I can see where we will have to act on a much more local level than this global level. Um, you know, governments will have to think about, well, how are we going to feed the people? Corporations aren't going to be able to have to, you know, be about all the profit. Uh, it feels like if we are going to be in this together, and that's a whole nother realm of this, you know, uh, who is going to really step up and um, take some, you know, responsibility and, and help, you know, rather than just uh, being concerned about the bottom line and their, you know, golden parachutes and, you know, billion-dollar salaries, you know, are we going to be able to sort of turn the ship and 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 take care of the people on the planet that don't have food, that don't have a roof over their head. You know, suddenly our priorities are really going to have to change, uh, as opposed to this, um, you know, the way we've we've always lived. And um, you know, and I guess I want to hear a little bit more about that too. You know, uh, practical things that you believe. Um, we're, that we are going to have to encourage our leaders to, um, you know, the, you know, the direction we're going to need our leaders to go in uh, if we are going to survive uh, on the planet, while at the same time realizing that in doing that, we will be employing the values of the sacred feminine, the caring, the sharing, the nurturing, the equality, uh, the taking care of the earth. You know, it no longer will be this predator capitalistic world that is killing us anyway and killing the planet. 
um, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've said enough. I'll, I'll you know, pass the baton back to you. Mm. No, it's great to hear you. And um, it's interesting you ask about what what we what we'll be asking our leaders to do. And actually, when I hear you mentioning the millennials and and some of these young people who who I'm meeting, seeing, hearing about, I have more faith in them than the the leaders with a capital L within politics and large business. So I think I think shifting our understanding of who our leaders are. There's there's something about I, I'm not saying that the political system and the the corporate leaders might not. Who knows? These are individual human beings who may have radical shifts in themselves. But at the moment, to be perfectly honest, I don't have much faith in them. But I do have faith in some of the people from the more marginal organizations, the millennials, some of the young people who are stepping up and making radical decisions, some of the people in the global south who, and in refugee camps who are having to meet collapse and catastrophe head-on already, and the skills that they're learning and the ways that they are, through necessity, proving what it takes. And so I guess if, if I were to be given a platform to advise world leaders, I'd say, please go and learn. Please go and sit with and learn from the young people. Learn from those who have been living, learn from refugees, the ones who have created extraordinary resilience and care in the face of trouble. Please go and learn with and contribute to the people in the global south who are managing to hold some of their indigenous wisdom in the face of catastrophe, to learn from some of the more radical activist leaders who are acting from a place of heart. Now, that would be my first step, and, and take some time out to slow down. And I would invite them to find ways to feel together, because if we're, if we're busy denying the feelings that all of this brings up in us, the grief, the anger, the fear, the numbness, if we deny that, then then a lot of our energy goes into the suppression of the feelings. And we miss out on a huge amount of, of human capacity and power. And I think that's where this notion of liberation, we were, we were wondering what to call this talk, and um, deep adaptation, liberation, and climate change. And that's part of the liberation, is that un, in unlocking unlocking our feelings and letting them be witnessed by each other in finding ways to grieve and grumble and express our fears and express our numbness in in front of each other and to see that we're not strange to have those feelings. We begin to unlock a huge amount of human potential. And this is the work that Joanna Macy and, and many of others have been doing for, for decades. It was originally called Despair and Empowerment Work. So in terms of the listeners, for those of you listeners for whom a lot of this is new, um, please do look up Jen Bendel's work. But also look up the work of people like Joanna Macy, um, who writes beautifully, particularly in her book, The World as Lover, World as Self, 
she writes beautifully about our interdependence and the necessity of allowing feelings and and the liberation that happens. So Karen, you also spoke beautifully earlier about um, you in listening to Jem that you I think you said something like feeling that you're you had I don't know you were speaking and I just had this excitement. I felt like I was joining you in some level of excitement about the liberation of the sacred feminine coming through because we need it now. It's like yeah. all the things that have stopped stopped it are uh, uh, going to have to fall away. So there's a liberation yeah, now yeah. of these things that have been longed for. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've been talking a long time in, in my circles, you know, about how do we birth the sacred feminine into this world. And, you know, it's been difficult because we're, we've all, you know, uh, been indoctrinated in capitalism and uh, mm-hmm. consumerism and uh, patriarchy. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's been a struggle to shift gears, even for those of us who know we need to shift gears, who want to shift gears, you know, we've wondered what it was going to take to um, finally have sacred feminine ideals at the center of society, Uh, but I think with this idea of climate change and and deep adaptation, I think the adaptation is to adapt to the sacred feminine. You know, we will have to take care of of one another. You know, it won't be this survival of the fittest uh, you know, sort of world uh, anymore. I mean, we won't be able to uh, allow our tax dollars to go toward bullets and bombs because it's probably going to have to go towards food and shelter. I mean, just basic essentials and survival things. Um, and um, and look, you know, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I'm just mm-hmm. saying that. Um, you know, maybe from this horrible situation we find ourselves in, that, uh, you know, it becomes the catalyst to shift us into uh, another way of being, you know, the way we probably should have been all along. And, you know, hopefully we can, um, you know, g- gather enough resources to still make it work for uh, the most of us and, you know, without an, an awful lot of um, uh, collateral damage, um, so, to, so to speak, you know. I mean, I know there are lots of people who think um, as, as miserable and disgusting as Donald Trump is, that he has at least been a catalyst to awaken people. Uh, and I can, I can see that too. So it's, it kind of feels like it's not until things become dire um, that real change happens, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, but I can see the positive aspects of something so dire as this climate change and that it will, you know, help us reshape our values, help us reshape how we are in the world, um, you know, for those of us that survive. Um, and, you know, and I'm sure it will be different in different places of the world. And I don't doubt that some of the people with the most, you know, with more money than God will figure out a way to disassociate themselves as much as possible, you know, have, have the most food, have the safest place to live um, so that they are untouched as much as possible by all of this. Um, but... Um, 
I, I, I don't know. It just it just uh, seems to me that uh, uh, it, 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 this is going to cause a radical shift, and the only way out is to really adopt the values of the sacred feminine. And I, I want to make sure before we go, because believe it or not, we've already spoken 45 minutes, um, I want to make sure you make the connection between this and menopause and eldership, um, because I think... Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure where you're going with that, but I, my intuition is it's an important piece of this. Hmm. Thank you. And as I, as I sit and listen to you, I, I feel the excitement in, in this potential liberation, and I believe in it profoundly. And at the same time, I have no question that that things are going to get really difficult. That things, that some some will awaken to the sacred feminine, some will awaken to the values that that uh, of the four R's of resilience and relinquishment, restoration, reconciliation, and the roots, receptivity, and <coughs> um, I've forgotten what my other oh, reciprocity. And but there will be there'll also be an escalation of the trouble. There'll also be and there already is an escalation of polarity, protectionism, lots of isms and so yeah, this this question of eldership, this question of how do we sit with the trouble, how do those of us who can be more rooted in the earth, more rooted in the sacred feminine, in the fierceness in the fire of the sacred feminine as well as the softness. How do we allow ourselves to be elders in this? So the menopause conversation, I, I came very early to menopause unexpectedly. Um, mine began at 39. And in what little reading I've done, what little referencing I've done, I've understood that there's a, a bit of it, that the whole process is, can often be about a 10-year journey for the whole thing of transformation and, and I've been relating with it in direct and clumsy ways as a as an initiation because I think that menopause is, is one of the most profound initiations as a woman and that one of the reasons we're in the mess we're in is that we haven't been initiated as young people into adulthood and that in later life the wisdom of the feminine has missed that initiation through menopause into into queen, priestess, crone, whichever whichever metaphors we want to use. Um, and so, part of my journey did include taking taking chunks of time out of the last ten years to to follow a deeper dreaming and follow a vision. And so, I'm going to bring a little poem in here that speaks to that. Um, it's an unfinished poem, so it doesn't actually have a title yet. <laughs> so exclusive here on your radio show. And and I speak, I use the word God in this, and to be clear, when I say God, I mean the sacred feminine, the mystery, the spirit that moves through all things, the that which is unnameable. Um, so when I, I was very surprised when I started using the word God, but I do not mean a male, single, monotheistic God. So just for clarity. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> mm. 
find just um, within this initiatory journey into the menopause, I, I had a vision of the desert and took six months in the metaphorical desert and then literally in the desert of, of Jordan, some of the deserts of Jordan, being um, on my own and fasting for, for various chunks of time. It breaks my heart to talk of God, cracks something right here in my ribcage, frees it up and out to meet the love affair I have been longing for. But it breaks my heart to talk of God, for to give the beloved a name pulls in the world. A world of such beauty and such battlefields that I am undone in trying to make any sense of it all. If you, I, and the Beloved are one, divine, mysterious, and perfect, then talk to me of Isis, Tibet, Mali, and the refugees. If you and I and the Beloved are one, then, then why are we Monsanto, Walmart, and those who dig the tar sands? Coming closer and closer to stillness, I find the first step. Take me to the desert, beloved. Take me to the desert, and when I am ready, bring me home, so we can sit and talk of God. You could end it right there. That's pretty, That's beautiful. Hmm. Um, I have to ask and our time is starting to get short Tony um, hmm. one of the things that you and Jim are calling for is for environmentalists out there to uh, be straight with people and uh, tell them the, the real truth of where we're at and that uh, there isn't the hope as much, or as there isn't as much hope as they would maybe lead us to believe. You know, they're still sugarcoating all of this. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit and also um, how people are responding uh, to this to this idea that uh, we are really past the point of no return and how, um, you know, how uh, people like Jim and you are calling on uh, humanity to respond? Mm. Well, one of the one of the ways is poetry. One of the ways is using the creative capacity of the human spirit to express these difficult truths. Often, often to just bombard people with facts and figures does a, a disservice and a violence to our hearts and our nervous systems. Whereas um, poetry and conversation and ritual. Even very, very kind of simple rituals and and simple ways to enable people to have conversations with each other in the framework of of deep adaptation. These are some of the ways that they don't sugarcoat things, but they enable us to they enable people for whom this is new to start to meet it in gentler, more soulful ways. And so, a big part of deep adaptation. While it is about how do we feed ourselves, how do we deal with economics, how do we deal with politics, 
without the relational part, without the the soul aspect, we're just going to repeat the patterns that we've been in before. So when we do things like that, so one of the, the ways that Jem was invited to do a big talk in in the UK, it was one of his first very public talks rather than within a sustainability conference. Um, and he was invited to do a talk about deep adaptation, and he invited me to bring poetry and to bring some exercises that I adapted from Joanna Macy's work, because there is this understanding that to just talk at people does a disservice. So that's one response. And you asked, how are people reacting? Um, it's some people feel liberated. It's like when, when the truth has been hanging around in the shadows, when the elephant has been filling our rooms and no one's been naming it. It's, it brings attention and when things are named, because this has been these climate change, species extinction, soil depletion, social unrest, these have been in the news for decades. And we know that things haven't been changing enough. You know, most of us know this, but because it's been a taboo, we've all had to kind of get on with being in denial. And as I spoke of earlier, being in denial actually takes a lot of energy. So there's a, a lot of people have been expressing a sense of liberation, of, of relief, that they can have these conversations. And it's not relief, it's not a kind of happy relief. It's not a happy liberation, but it's, it's permission to grieve because people are also grieving. There, there are, and there are people who are, of course, finding it really difficult. So we are in conversations with therapists. I, I, I do one-to-one work and I do group work, but I'm not a therapist. Um, but there are more and more people within the therapeutic world, like the um, Climate Psychology Alliance. That's worth looking up, the Climate Psychology Alliance and other people who are, who are looking at what are the therapeutic responses, how do we support people to deal with the traumatic res- response that can happen. Um, I kind of feel privileged in that one of my main ways into doing this kind of work was through mental health breakdown, through depression. And somehow I was lucky enough to understand that my depression was actually an invitation to go deeper and was lucky enough to have the kind of quality of support that made me understand that it wasn't just personal. It's ecological, it's historical, it's collective. And so having conversations to to be more open about this through poetry, through workshops, through just talking about it, it helps people understand that, that their grief, their fear, their anger, their numbness is a healthy response. It's a healthy response to what's going on. So the more we normalize feeling bad, the more we normalize feeling upset, the freer we are to get on with, okay, so now what? So what if this is true? Now what do we do? How do I want to be? Who do I want to be? What calls to me as, as an expression of my humanity in relation to my, my loved ones? and in relation to the wider world. 
So it's not easy. I kind of I want to make sure I'm not kind of sugarcoating this as, yeah, it's great. We're doing all this deep adaptation work, and people are loving it, and everything's going to change. So it's going to be rosy. It's not. It's difficult. It's messy. It's deeply uncomfortable. But at least it's out there in the conversation for many of us. And for many, the response is, right, okay, what am I going to do? There's a, there's a, there's a lot of kind of quite quick shifting into, great, I'm going to drop that job, I'm going to drop that career ambition, and I'm going to turn towards permaculture or learning how to run workshops to support people's grief or whatever it might be. So, yeah, it's quite a mixed response with the answer. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um so uh, we're about out of time here, and I do want to let you end with one of your beautiful poems. Um, the one you mm-hmm. said was uh, not complete, not complete yet. It uh, it actually felt very complete to me. It uh, mm-hmm. it was it was very powerful. Uh, so I do want to end with one of your poems. Uh, but uh, please, before we close with that, um, I I believe Jim has a forty-page something PDF out there about this or. Uh, and I know their Facebook pages on deep adaptation. Uh, just give a couple resources for people to um, be able to, you know, dig into this a little bit deeper because we, you know, there's so many layers to this, and we really only were able to scratch the surface here. Mm. Absolutely. Um, so, yes, there are a number of resources. I'm just going to pull some up. So, um Jem has a blog, and, and on his blog there are a number of papers. There's the original paper that he wrote that kind of launched, unexpectedly launched the deep adaptation concept into the wider world. And then lots of further conversations. So his blog is Jem Bendel, that's J-E-M-B-E-N-D-E-L-L, dot wordpress.com. So that's a wonderful resource if you go there, and that will also point you to various other resources. And there's also a Facebook group called Positive Deep Adaptation. And that's very specifically about what are some of the positive responses and positive um, ways that we can engage with deep adaptation. It's, It's... um, got a very particular remit. So if you go, if you use Facebook, you can go on to look for positive deep adaptation, and there are very clear guidelines about the purpose of that particular group. And um, <coughs> Gems also set up, and it's continuing to develop further for anyone who's professionally involved with this kind of thing, uh, whether it's around food or psychology or community building strategy, whatever it might be, there is a deep adaptation Ning group, a deep adaptation forum. So that, if you look up deep adaptation, or one word, dot Ning, that's N-I-N-G, dot com. And that's an invitation for people to start to collaborate and network with each other who are professionally working in some way related to this field or want to be. Um, 
if you'd like to know more about me and my work, I have a, a website in the making. <laughs> so it's um, it's a little uh, at the moment it's just a holding page, but it should be have more information on it sooner in terms of events that I'm doing and poetry and my mentoring work. And that is <coughs> Tony Spencer. That's that's T O N I dot co dot uk. TonySpencer.co.uk um, and that's probably enough for now. On on my website, there's a you can email me through the website if you did want to be in touch personally. Okay, sounds good. Uh, that's definitely a lot there, you know, because it's going to be up to us. You know, we we've, we've been bombarded, I think, in the last decade, maybe even more. Uh, about you know the post-apocalyptic world, and uh, you know, I, and I'm even a fan of The Walking Dead. I'm sure you probably have heard mm-hmm. of it at least if you don't see it there in the UK. And you know, and it's not the zombies that interest me. It's how the human beings uh, treat each other in the um, in the apocalypse. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, we've certainly seen how bad things can be, uh, you know, by way of Hollywood. And, um, you know, I, it, it's up to us whether that's our future, you know, uh, or, or it looks very different. And, you know, we actually do figure out a way to put the sacred feminine uh, at the center. Absolutely. It is. It really, as you say, it really is. How do we want to be now? Yeah. You know, and what, what, if, what if all of this was wrong? And actually, we're fine. You know, so a lot of people don't want to go there because they want to wait till there's proof. But, you know, what what if climate change is a hoax? What if we're absolutely fine? Oh, my goodness. We will have put all this work into becoming more loving, <laughs> more caring, more connected, uh, more joyful, more resilient. And I think that's, again, that's a kind of a liberation where... where we we don't need to get too involved in the detail of it to know right. that it makes sense to absolutely to really question how absolutely we want to do it. I just I totally agree um, well please Tony um, uh, close with uh, one of your uh, one of your poems that you think would be the most meaningful for listeners as we have to say goodbye to you now. Hmm. Thank you, and thank you so much for inviting me and um, for the work that you're doing, really. Thank you for the work you're doing in and for the world. It's very beautiful. So uh, I'd like to offer my poem Reciprocal Rhythm. So this speaks to receptivity, roots, and reciprocity, as well as resilience. There's a reciprocal rhythm, a flow between things, a velocity of reciprocity that builds a village, builds a dream, builds a fucking world. For we are kin, and kin means I need you, and you need me, and the sun, and the water, and the soil born of things long dead. Most of us grew up in little boxes, 
little box is made of ticky-tacky. My house, your house. My plate, your plate. In the desert, there is one plate at dinner. One plate where we all tuck in, fingers first, food for all. I want that. I want you to ask me for stuff. Because asking is the kind of boldness we need. Tell me what you want. And I come a little closer to you. And we dance. It's not even the yes or the no, but the asking that rocks the world to this rhythm. And the ticky-tacky begins to crumble. Walls fall, and we need each other all the more. There is a reciprocal rhythm. Let me give you things. Don't hold back your receiving, because it leaves us both bereft of the kinship that ties us, reminds us of our entwinedness as ecological beings. I cannot, no, I will not survive without you. Okay, maybe some kind of half-living, but not the kind I'm worthy of, not the kind you're worthy of. Help me, not to fix, but to fill the heart, not to trade, but to till the soil of interbeing that is all there has ever been. Help each other, help the world, help the environment, but not to fix. Do it to fill the heart, not to trade, but to till the soil of interbeing that is all there has ever been. There's a reciprocal rhythm, and it's not in 4-4, for it doesn't follow straight lines. It's a wild rhythm where I help you, and you help her, and she gets to stop, and he gives all he has for love. There is a reciprocal rhythm, and it's not in 4-4. Thank you, Tony. Um, You know, it it reminds me of something we talk about in the goddess community, in the sacred feminine community. You've maybe heard of Genevieve Vaughan uh, for quite some time. She's been an elder in the community, and she's been talking about the gift economy. And Mm. um, it certainly does remind me of that. Absolutely. Um, Well, uh, well, I do want to thank you for your time, um, you know, for – you know, making time to do this and, uh, you know, help bring this, uh, this concept to, uh, you know, to my audience and, and provide all of those resources. And, of course, your beautiful, heartfelt, um, you know, poems that, uh, you know, you made so clearly, you know, it, this isn't just about the practicality of this. You know, it's, it's also um, the heart connection to it. And, uh, you know, you've, you've convinced me of that. You know, I'm a kind of a, a practical, pragmatic person, um, but uh, I, I can definitely see your point that, um, you know, if we don't incorporate that heart aspect of this, then, um, you know, we, we will not have succeeded in um, incorporating the 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 full extent I think of the sacred feminine values into whatever it is we create. I hope I language that okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's great. And I I think it's that also somehow being able to get to to reframe. I I catch myself saying, oh, well, we'll get to the practical stuff later, but let's talk about relationship first. And, of course, if our relationships are dysfunctional, then it's a really practical issue. So there's something yeah. there where where the feminine helps us remember that you know without that emotional labor, without that relational attention, without the balance of the yin to the yang, then then we have real problems, and we're in the mess that we're in. Yeah. I mean, if to use a, a gardening metaphor, it's what are you planting your seeds in, so to speak? Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know. Well, Tony, thank you uh, so much. Uh, please let's keep in touch. And um, if uh, down the road something comes up that you'd like to share with listeners, please get in touch. And uh, I hope you're going to put these wonderful poems on your website. Mm. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. All right. I've um, enjoyed it. Good evening, and thank you for thank you for calling in. You're welcome. Goodbye. Bye bye. Um, what a what a, a layered uh, and deep subject. Um, I hope all of you will take it to heart and think about it and go to some of these resources uh, that uh, Tony Spencer has just shared. Uh, and again, uh, Jim Bendell is another great source, uh, and uh, to spell his name correctly. Uh, it is J E M B E N D E L L. Please go there and uh, learn more about this because Tony and I really were just uh, able to scratch the surface. But if you're like me, um, you know, when I first heard about this, I knew this was something I had to uh, know more about. Uh, and I especially wanted to know how it related to the sacred feminine. And um, I, I just think it is uh, so important um, that we educate ourselves about this and not bury our heads in the sand. So uh, before I let you go, however, uh, I do have a word uh, from Jo Carson. Uh, Here she is. Most people's psychic experiences are dreaming, and it's thought that it's the pineal gland making this chemical that does it. Now, this was the core finding core finding that the pineal gland makes a hallucinogen, we all hallucinate, we all go into a state of consciousness, that for me is the collective unconscious. The psychic state is the collective unconscious, which is that consciousness of the planet, what's called the chthonic mind, the mind of the earth. Because all peoples, all races, all tribes, from the past right around the world, have myths and legends which use symbols and archetypes which are identical. Identical. Every human being experiences this state of consciousness, which is the dream mind. That symbolic, archetypal, exemplified by fairy tales, or the creation myths and legends of all the different peoples. The symbols of them are the same, and to me that is the consciousness of the earth speaking to us.
Well, you've been listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. And as she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of goddesses Gaia. You might not have realized, but Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey, they profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. Well, if you've always wanted to see these places yourself but haven't, this is a great opportunity to be an armchair tourist. You can experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. And you can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20. And the place you go to get it uh, is the website dancingwithgaia.com dancingwithgaia.com um, Now I want to let you know that I will not be with you next Wednesday uh, I have a change in my schedule. I will be back with you uh, on Friday, May 17th and um, I will have with me as my guest Susan DeGaia. Uh, she's recently released a two-volume encyclopedia on women in uh, religion around the world. Uh, I think you'll want to uh, hear about that, uh, uh, that wonderful book. And um, uh, later on in the month, uh, I will have uh, Heather Godfrey with me. We're going to be talking about uh, essential oils uh, for mindfulness. And uh, the last Wednesday of May, uh, Alessandra Bologna uh, is with me. Now, some of you may have heard of her. Uh, she um, is well known for um, her dances, uh, revering the Black Madonna. Uh, she has a book that's out. Uh, we're going to be uh, talking about that, and uh, I don't think you'll want to miss it. Uh, her book is The Healing Journeys with the Black Madonna, and we're going to be talking about um, her Black Madonna work and uh, her healing dances. Um, so uh, make sure you click the follow button. Uh, here at uh, Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the show page, and that way you won't have to remember to tune in, or get in. You won't have to wait to get an email from me or see something on Facebook. Um, if you hit the follow button, you will just automatically have uh, in your inbox uh, an email that will uh, give you a link to the current. Um, you know, to the current uh, interview that's uh, going to be happening, and you can always listen to it uh, at your convenience, uh, either live if that works for you, uh, or from the archives. Uh, and just a reminder: uh, in the last few months, uh, I did have some uh, transitional things happening for myself as well. Uh, I know some of you have been trying to reach me, and you're using an old website and an old email address. Um, and you might not be on the mailing list for my newsletter, uh, Dancing at the Edges with Karen Tate. Uh, so uh, please, if uh, you do want to stay in touch with me, uh, my email address is karentate108 at yahoo.com. The new website is karentate.net. And uh, if you'd like to be on the monthly newsletter, Dancing at the Edges with Karen Tate, please just pop me an email, and I will be happy to add you to the list. Uh, well, that about does it. 
uh, I am going to go out today and enjoy what's left of the wildflowers. And uh, I hope you will do something that will um, do good for your heart and your mind as well. Uh, thank you, dear listeners, uh, for your listener loyalty over the years. I certainly appreciate you, I, and I love hearing from you. So please do uh, reach out. Uh, I'm always open to show ideas, uh, always open to uh, comments and feedback. Uh, thank you again, and um, I will be with you on uh, May 17th. And, uh, if, and if you need a Voices of the Sacred Feminine fix before then, uh, there's lots of great stuff in the archives. Uh, please go digging through it and uh, enjoy what's there. Thank you, and goodbye for today. <laughs>